8, um, better memorandum that you prepared for Admiral Poindexter for this meeting. I, I held, I, as I see on this memorandum, it was prepared by myself and another staff officer. And do you recall, sir, that the subject of this meeting was the dire condition uh, that uh, the uh, countries were facing in terms yes. of funding? Yes. And uh, you actually attended uh, the uh, meeting, am I correct? This, I do not remember whether I actually s attended that meeting or not. I guess I did since my name is on the attendance list. Do you recall attending a meeting at which it was suggested that pursuant to the authorization uh, that Congress had granted for humanitarian solicitation that uh, the uh, Secretary of State would try to come up with a list of countries to solicit. And I can show you your exhibit 343, which which is that um, which is in the classified book. You recall attending that meeting. You see yourself listed as the last name there, most junior person there. That was frequently the case, counsel. You see yourself listed. I do. And do you, does, if you look over those, does it refresh your recollection that the discussion there was how to get money for the Contras? Including going back to Congress, going to third countries. In fact, if you look at page 7, you'll see uh, a reference to uh, statements by Secretary of State Schultz. Does that refresh your recollection at all, Colonel? Somewhat. I, I must confess not to have a vivid recollection of this meeting, but I obviously was there. Well, do you and this was obviously the subject of, dis of discussion. I'm not trying to be evasive. Do I just don't remember it well. Do you recall a dis that that the meeting ended with a suggestion that a list of countries who might be approached would be prepared and submitted to the President. I do not remember that. But I, I'm not saying it didn't happen at the meeting. Now, do you recall that following that meeting, you wrote a prop note um, uh, to Admiral Poindexter, which appears at uh, Exhibit 10, this is not in the classified. Got a prof note that you wrote. I have a note from we're talking about the bottom, uh, the bottom one. The note. This is further. Second page. Note from Oliver North, subject Iran and terrorism. And then, if you look at the uh, third paragraph, so third or fourth. Yes. You and it reads: You should be aware that the resistance support organization. That's late. I don't see it. 
Are you looking at Exhibit 10? Yes. Do you see a sentence that begins, you should be aware? I see it, yes. You should be aware that the resistance support organization now has more than $6 million available for immediate disbursement? Yes. And in fact, that was $6 million that was generated from the deposits for the arms sales. That's correct, isn't it? I believe it is, yes. And then it says this reduces the need to go to third countries for help. That's what it says. Now, does that refresh your recollection that earlier that day there was a discussion with the President at the NSPG meeting that you participated in about going to third countries for help? Again, my recollection of the meeting is with the President is not altogether clear. Very obviously, I wrote this note, and it does refer back to that reference that you have made. Now, did you ever uh, discuss with Admiral Poindexter uh, the subject of this note, namely that the need to, for the Secretary of State and the President to get involved in third country solicitation had been relieved to a little extent by the $6 million that you now had available? Well, I think the, the issue is not so much the need. The issue was, and certainly it was my understanding, is you needed a lot more than 6 or even $10 million from Brunei. You but needed this, a lot of money. But this was good news, wasn't it? Well, I would guess so, yes. That's what you were conveying? Yes. Did you ever discuss with Admiral Poindexter that this was good news that ought to be brought to the attention of the President of the United States or the Secretary of State? I did not. I, I saw no need to. I, I still believe that we ought to have gone to others and go back to others that have already given because the need was much greater than six million. Well, this said, this, need, um, you know, and, and I th didn't you say wait, this wait. reduces the need? Those are your words. Well, perhaps the immediacy of the need. Those are not. I'm not going to back away from the words that I wrote at the time. The point that I'm trying to make is, just like the one I tried to make yesterday when we were talking about Boland, is there was always a need to get more money, to get the CIA back involved. And this note says that. What occasion? No, I didn't, I didn't want to be, able, or to, to be out there doing mm. these things, Council. What I was trying to do was to get a full program reestablished by the government of the United States. And we were trying to bridge it Her until that happened. Colonel, what occasioned you to write to Admiral Poindexter saying that this reduces the need? Well, I think probably that it was important he understand that Secretary Schultz didn't need to go out that afternoon and go ask for additional help. But as we all know, Secretary Schultz eventually did. Now, let's go on here because you do in this note, and you've already testified to it, you plead for um, the um, legislation to get the CIA back into it. Yes. And you say, the more money there is, and see if you can follow me, it's the next paragraph. Why don't we read the whole thing? Because I think well, that's I would like to read. Counsel. I'd like to read this, and then we can come back and read anything that you feel that I haven't done in context. But well, I, but I think that the, the entire context of the note is important. I am asking the questions now, and I would like to read these and ask you about them. I the will more, answer your questions, Counsel. The more money there is, and we will have a consideration. Where are you reading? It's the paragraph, that same paragraph, but there's a break, and it be, where the break is, there's a two arranged. Do you see that? It's the bottom paragraph on the page. It's the bottom paragraph, though it's not broken into paragraphs. Unless we do this, we will run increasing risks of trying to manage this program from here with the attendant physical and political liabilities. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. And then it says, I am not complaining, and you know that I love the work, but we have to lift some of 
this onto the CIA so that I can get more than two, three hours of sleep at night. The more money there is, and we will have a considerable amount in a few more days, and let's stop there. That was also going to be more money from the Iranian deposits? I believe so, if the time is right. The more money there is, and we will have a considerable amount in a few more days, the more visible the program becomes, parentheses, airplanes, pilots, weapons, deliveries, etc., and the more inquisitive will become people like Kerry, Barnes, Hawkins et al. Those are members of Congress? They are. While I care not a whit what they may say about me, it could well become a political embarrassment for the President and you. I think that's been borne out. And what was the political embarrassment that you were focusing on then? We have it before us, Council. That it would come out that you were generating the funds for the Contras and doing what you've described to assist the support operation? Yes. And you then come up with the proposal much of this risk can be avoided simply by covering it with an authorized CIA program undertaken with the $15 million. And you say that Schultz doesn't seem to understand that, right? That's what I said. And then you say, I have no idea what Don Regan does or does not know of my private United States operation, but the President obviously knows why he has been meeting with several select people to thank them for their support, right? That's what it says. And those were people who you had, had put the scheduling request in for? As again, I, my recollection is that I did relatively few of those. That, that procedure was eventually taken over by others. And incidentally, you I don't want to get into a semantic argument about whether about solicitation or not solicitation. Uh, you, the slides that you have identified for us are part of a, a um, program that you would show. Is that correct? It was described earlier by this committee as a one-two punch. Right, and that was what it was. I, I disagree with that characterization, Council. I think that it denigrates the intelligence of the people with whom I was speaking and their willingness to contribute to a cause that was important to the national security of the United States. Well, do you deny that what you were doing was that you were pointing out to them what you believed the national security of the United States required in terms of support for the Contras and then telling them that you could not ask them for money, that that had to be done across the street. I, I would stop my presentation where the point was somebody, where I, where I would say that they had to go to somebody else. I don't think I ever told anybody else to go to Mr. Channel or Mr. Miller or anyone else. You I would simply indicate to them that I could not and would not solicit money. And I don't believe the committee has any evidence to the fact that I did. Well, do you deny that you told them that they, if they were disposed to give, they should see channel? My recollection, counsel, is that I stopped at the point that I just told you. I've spoken to thousands of people, perhaps even tens of thousands of people, about the needs of the Nicaraguan freedom fighters, and I did not solicit from them a penny. You just prepared them for the pitch that would be made by Channel? Call it what you will, Council. Well, I was explaining exactly what the situation was in Central America and how it would affect the national security 
of the United States of America. And if good Americans were motivated to give money to the Nicaraguan freedom fighters as a consequence, all I can say is thank God, because without that help, they could well have died in the fields of Nicaragua under the helicopter gunships provided by the Soviet Union. Well, Colonel, do you think it's an unfair characterization that you were trying to encourage them to give? Sure. It's the committee's job to draw its own conclusions. Don't have him characterize anything. Just ask, ask him the him question what his and he'll give you the answer. He's okay. answered it several times, uh, Mr. Chairman. And Mr. Chairman, Three. he's answered the question several times. The committee members will draw their own conclusions about this. I, I will withdraw that that question, I Thank think you. we can draw. Counsel, I would be willing to give that briefing to this committee if you'd indulge me, and you can draw your conclusions from that, and I will give it verbatim the way I gave it to tens of thousands of Americans. Did you some who were disposed toward the resistance, and some who were desperately opposed to it. Did you give munitions lists? I'm sure that I did. I gave ex the cost of various munitions, the cost of various aircraft, the cost of uh, blowpipe missiles as they were provided to me. Give costs of advertising? I don't know that I did. I wasn't quite as familiar with advertising as I was with weapon systems. Did you ever tell the President of the United States that the only thing that people were being asked to do was to contribute for advertising? I do not recall ever telling the President that. You testified that one reason that uh, uh, Mr. Casey uh, was excited about the plan uh, for uh, use of the residuals was that he wanted to have uh, a, uh, a funded organization that he could pull off the shelf to do other operations. Is that what, what in essence, his view was? We're talking about my alleged solicitation now? No, no, we're back to uh, the, um, uh, uh, the use of the residuals. Sorry, counsel, would you please repeat the question? Do you remember giving testimony, and it was not clear to me at least, about the fact that uh, Director Casey wanted something that he could pull off the shelf and that that's why he was oh. excited about the fact that yes. you were now able to generate some surpluses that could be used? That is correct. Well, why don't you give us a description of what he said or, or as you understood it, what he meant about pulling something off the shelf? Director Casey had in mind, as, as I understood it, an overseas entity that was capable of conducting operations or activities of assistance to U.S. foreign policy goals that was a standalone, it was self-financing, self uh, independent of appropriated monies, and capable of conducting uh, activities similar to the ones that we had conducted here. There were other countries that were suggested that might be the, the beneficiaries of that kind of support, other activities to include counterterrorism. Did I understand you to say, and if I'm wrong, just tell me that the, uh, the chart that you had um, uh, drawn by, by Hakim, uh, which is Exhibit 328, uh, was a chart to, to uh, reflect that concept? Uh, I, don't, I don't recall asking uh, Mr. Hakim for that chart. I think uh, my recollection, <coughs> excuse me, my recollection is correct. That chart was uh, something that I had asked uh, General Secord for. But was it intended to reflect the concept as described by Director Casey? Yes. Here? Now, Director Casey was in charge of the CIA. 
and had at his disposal an operations directorate, correct? Certainly. And as I understand your testimony, Director Casey was proposing to you that a CIA outside of the CIA be created. Fair? No. Well, wasn't this an organization that would be able to do covert policy to advance U.S. foreign policy interests? Well, not necessarily all covert. The director was interested in the ability to go to an existing, as he put it, off-the-shelf, self-sustaining, stand-alone entity that could perform certain activities on behalf of the United States. And as I tried to describe to the committee last night in the executive session, several of those activities were discussed with both Director Casey and with Admiral Poindexter. Some of those were to be conducted jointly by other friendly intelligence services. Colonel. But they needed money. Colonel. Yes, Counsel. You understood that the CIA is funded by the United States government, correct? That is correct. You understood that the United States government put certain limitations on what the CIA could do, correct? That is correct. And I ask you today, after all you've gone through, are you not shocked that the Director of Central Intelligence is proposing to you the creation of an organization to do these kinds of things outside of his own organization? Counsel, I can tell you I'm not shocked. I don't see that it was necessarily inconsistent with the laws, regulations, statutes, and all that obtain. I don't see that it would necessarily be unconstitutional. I don't see that it would necessarily be in any way a violation of anything that I know of. And if indeed the Director had chosen to use one of these entities out there to support an operation in the Middle East or South America or Africa and an appropriate finding were done and the appropriate activities were authorized by the Commander-in-Chief or the Head of State in his capacity to do so, what would be wrong? Maybe I'm overly naive, but I don't see what would be wrong with that. Well, maybe you are, but did the Director ever tell you that he contemplated that this private organization would operate pursuant to presidential findings? We never got that far. Did the Director ever tell you that this private organization would be subject to oversight pursuant to the laws of the United States by Congress? Again, the discussion didn't get that far. Let me describe one example to you, if I may. When we ended up needing a ship to perform a certain task, there was nowhere to get one on short notice. And so this organization produced it practically overnight. But is it a fact? And that was because the Director said, we can't find one anywhere else. Get a ship. And we got a ship. And that was a ship to be used for a covert operation, correct? As I defined them to you last night, there were several that were to be done by that ship. But that ship was to be used for a covert operation. That is correct. And is it a fact, sir, that it was purchased out of the funds that were generated by the Iranian arms sale? It didn't cost the taxpayers of the United States a cent. But was it generated out of the proceeds of the Iranian arms sale? I cannot tell you exactly what the source of those funds were, other than it was not taxpayers' money. And you and I both know there were many sources for the funds that went into those accounts. Those accounts were the enterprise accounts? I never referred to them as the enterprise. I referred to them by several. The lake account was the money in. Project democracy. Thank you. We use terms like that. I don't have a problem with using a term called project democracy. Well, let's talk about that, because part of democracy here was that there was a law that said that the President of the United States should authorize covert operations, right? Yes. I think that Mr. Lyman, if I might make a point of order, I think Mr. Lyman is out of line in asking questions that prejudge opinion of this committee. 
He is phrasing his questions to make an argument, to slant it as though the entire committee thinks that this is a horrible thing. I, he doesn't speak for everybody. I don't know that it is or it isn't. But I thought that Mr. Lyman was supposed to be getting facts out today, not expressing views, not expressing shock, not expressing the idea that, uh, of his own opinion or this committee. And I, I just am greatly concerned that this is not the appropriate. If, if one of us wants to do it, maybe that's our, our role. But I didn't think council should be doing it, Mr. Chairman. The point of order has been noted, and the record will show that you disagree with the method by which Mr. Lyman is questioning. Please proceed. Colonel, you worked on the presidential finding. I worked on a number, a number of presidential findings. Was there a provision in that presidential finding signed by Ronald Reagan for the purchase of this ship? No but there was nothing that prohibited the purchase of the ship by the private commercial companies that were supporting that activity. And, and the ship was there to serve the foreign policy goals of the United States. The fact that we were, the whole operation was terminated before it could do so is unfortunate in my humble opinion. Was the President of the United States told about the fact that that ship had been purchased? I do not know. The Congress wasn't told, correct? They certainly know now. But they weren't told at the time. I don't believe they were, sir. So that as far as your own personal knowledge was concerned, the people who approved the purchase of this ship for this covert operation were you? Director of Central Intelligence and Admiral Poindexter. And Richard Secord, who was managing the private commercial operation. Did Richard Secord do it at the request of you? He did. Did you feel that you needed the approval of Admiral Poindexter to do it? I believe I sought that approval. Did you seek that approval with a memo that went up the line in the same form as the ones we've been talking about? What do you mean by the same form? We've seen the, several different forms well, here this Well, the forms say Council. recommend that you brief the President. I don't know that it did or not. And you also got the approval of the Director of Central Intelligence. I got the request from the Director of Central Intelligence. It didn't, the idea did not originate with me. We found ourselves without the capability, unbelievable though that may seem, to put a radio broadcast ship out at sea off a hostile nation, and we couldn't find a ship in the entire CIA inventory or the United States Navy that was able to do it. The Director of Central Intelligence came to me, and within, I think, 72 hours, we had a ship. Don't you think that's a decision that the President of the United States should make? If the Director of Central Intelligence asked me to produce a ship, and I did so, I think that is, that is good and sufficient. Now, if you look at a, uh, 5.15, would you look at the, your prop note from um, Admiral Poindexter on this ship? You remember that Admiral Poindexter, I'll get you the number, but please do. Okay. 191. 191. 191. You remember Admiral Poindexter? No, Do you remember Admiral Poindexter sending you this prop note? Now that you show it to me, I do. Let's read it. It's dated 
In a memo from Ken, who's Ken? Mr. DeGraffenried, who was the director of the Intelligence uh, Directorate and Special Assistant to the President. In a memo from Ken to me today, he talks about your offering a Danish ship under your control to CIA for broadcasting into, and then it's blanked out, that's a hostile country, right? Yes. And then Admiral Poindexter says to you, I am afraid you are letting your operational role become too public. From now on, I don't want you to talk to anyone else, including Casey, except me, about any of your operational roles. In fact, you need to quietly generate a cover story that I have insisted that you stop. Remember that? I do. So he wanted you to continue, but to have a cover story that you stopped. And right? the last line is, be cautious. Be cautious. And, and that note was sent to me at uh, 9.21 at night while the Admiral was still at work. And you talked about the fact that I can tell Direct, you, exactly you talked why that about. Note I will give you the second. You talked that, that opportunity in a second. You talked about the fact that Director Casey described the um, the Iran initiative with the residuals being generated as the and these are your words the ultimate covert operation. Yes. Would you agree? that this here is the ultimate covert operation, even one that you're not to talk to the Director of Central Intelligence about. The problem that, was genera that generated this note was that Director Casey had told someone on his staff that they could go to me for the ship. When I was out of town or out of the office, a call was placed to Mr. DeGraffenried's office instead of mine because he was the normal point of contact for the CIA. And that's what generated this note. It was not my indiscretion in that case. It was Director Casey's, unfortunately. So, so, we re so this business of covert operations reached a point where not only Congress was regarded as too indiscreet to be told, but that even the Director of Central Intelligence made that list. I have no further questions this morning. Mr. Chairman. Chairman. Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, I uh, would like to inquire the plans for this afternoon. We've now had 21 hours of questioning. No member of the committee has yet had the opportunity to ask any questions of the witness. Uh, our original intent was to finish by this evening. Obviously, we aren't going to make that now, but. Uh, Without in any way casting any aspersions on Mr. Lyman, he's had a full day to ask questions, and I wonder how soon we can expect him to finish his uh, examination of the witness. Mr. Lyman? I, be I believe that I can finish it in no more than an hour, and I'm going to try to do it in a half hour. Well, Mr. Chairman, I would hope we can hold that deadline. Uh, I do think we need to move on, and I do think the original purpose of this uh, exercise was to allow members to question, and I think the Procedures we've adopted badly need to be adjusted, and I hope we take that into consideration in connection with our next witness. Thank you. Mr. Chairman. Mr. Cheney, I'm certain you realize that uh, this matter is presently under consideration. Mr. Chairman, uh, thank the chair. Mr. Chairman, uh, Mr. Lyman in his uh, uh, examination of the witness has uh, implied that the speech that Colonel North gave was a solicitation for funds or that uh, during the speech he solicited funds. Now, the Colonel indicated that it wasn't so and asked permission to give that briefing to this committee so we could form our own opinion. Uh, since it uh, is a relevant point made so uh, by the questions of Mr. Lyman, I asked the chair that the witness be given permission to give that briefing to this Congress or to this committee so we, with the slides, so we can form our own conclusions as to whether he solicited money. I ask the chair. I will discuss this matter with your chairman, Mr. Hamilton.
Will we I have a ruling on that this afternoon, Mr. Chairman? May I ask the Colonel a question, sir? How long will this briefing take? Because we're trying to cut down our consideration of you as a witness. I believe it can be done in 20 minutes, sir. We will make every effort to have that briefing as, as soon as the slides are available. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. If there are no further questions at this juncture, we'll stand in recess until 2 p.m. this afternoon. The hearing will please come to order. Mr. Corder. I, I wanted to thank you for your favorable ruling on the request, and I think it was a reasonable request in light of the, uh, the implication and the innuendo in the questions. And it's my understanding that uh, the briefing material and the slides are here at hand. Uh, the question I have now is when uh, will uh, uh, Colonel North be given the opportunity to uh, present that briefing. This matter was considered during the lunch hour, and I would like to report and recommend the following. 
We do have the slides. We're now in the process of getting an appropriate slide projector. However, we have a few problems. One, some of the slides are still classified. As the Colonel knows, uh, we have some aerial photographs involved. Secondly, in order to give the panel of senators and congressmen the full flavor and the full aura of what happened during the presentation, we're now in the process of inviting Mr. Channel and Mr. Miller, because they're all part of the operation. And when that is available, we will get a room. But not Mr. at this time. Mr. Chairman. This is still under consideration. Mr. Chairman. Mr. Cohen. Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman. Uh, shortly before we uh, broke for lunch, there was an indication that perhaps our counsel uh, should cut short his uh, questioning of Colonel North. I wanted to point out just for the record that no member of the Senate interrupted House counsel uh, during their uh, questioning of Colonel North. Not one member ever interrupted either Mr. Niels or Mr. Van Cleese. Number two, there were no time limits imposed upon House counsel. It took two and a half days. And I reject the notion that uh, somehow because the members don't like either Mr. Lyman's tone or style, that he should be uh, forced to cut short his questioning. Point number three is Oliver North has demonstrated he's not only a brave military officer, but he's also a superb witness. And I think he's had a lot tougher things thrown at him during his lifetime than questions by Arthur Lyman. And I think he's fully capable of handling those questions without the uh, able assistance of members of Congress. And the final point I'd like to make is Perhaps the most serious revelation to have taken place during the course of these proceedings is that of a plan proposed by or conceived by high-ranking officials to create a contingency fund for the intended purpose of carrying out other covert operations at some time in the future. With or without presidential findings, with or without notice to Congress remains uh, to be heard from. But if members of Congress are not disturbed about that revelation, then I think the American people should be. And if it takes more time to discuss this in depth and other related issues, I am perfectly happy to yield whatever time I have allocated to me so that Mr. Lyman might continue. But I strongly object to the notion raised by House members of trying to impose a gag rule upon Mr. Lyman. Mr. Mr. Chairman? Would the gentleman yield? I would yield. I'm not sure which House members uh, the gentleman from Maine is referring to. Um, I uh, specifically recall that during the morning recess, it was a United States senator uh, that expressed publicly and on television his irritation with the fact that all councils, not Senate counsel, but all councils were taking four days, not having any limitation on their time, while members were permitted four, five, or ten minutes. Not once did that senator interrupt any member, any council, or any member of the, uh, of the House. The Senate has not objected or interrupted during the course of these proceedings while Mr. Niels and others were questioning these. Would I, gentleman yield. Uh, if, if the gentleman would yield to me, uh, I would like, since it's a point of privilege, I'm the one who did the interrupting initially. Mr. Cheney didn't. His point on length I of did. time came at the end of the proceedings. And I didn't interrupt because I thought that Mr. Lyman was taking too much time, although I think counsel, maybe Mr. Niels was the one who's taking too much time, as Senator Boren said on television earlier this morning. The point that I was interrupting for was because I don't think that Mr. Lyman or Mr. Niels, as our counsel, should be advocating or slanting questions to advocate a bias or position or a slant of opinion. Their job, I thought, in my opinion, whether the Senate counsel or House counsel, is to bring out facts, not to give positions, not to slant biases. And I think that Mr. Lyman has been going through a whole pattern of biased questions today. He's done some of that in the past, but it's been particularly egregious this morning. And I didn't think it was fair to let it continue without making the point that it does not represent this member's views. It may represent, may represent yours, Senator Cohen's, but it doesn't represent mine. Mr. Chairman. Mr. Sarbanes. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I totally reject the characterization that Mr. McCollum has put on uh, Arthur Lyman's questioning. I think it's clearly been within proper bounds. I think it's been very professional. It has certainly been well within the parameters 
of the charge to this committee. It was Mr. McCollum who, in response to the testimony of Mr. Cooper before this committee, said, speaking about Colonel North, Mr. McFarlane, and Admiral Poindexter, and I quote him now with respect to their conversations with the Attorney General. This is Mr. McCollum now speaking about Colonel North and the other two gentlemen. I think that that in itself may well be a crime. If it is not a crime, it is certainly one of the highest acts of insubordination and one of the most treacherous things that has ever occurred to a president, it seems to me, in our history. Now, I'm quite prepared to talk about fairness. I haven't accused anyone in this matter of criminal conduct. I recognize that that's being examined in a different form. And I think the witnesses that come before us come here in order to help us get at the truth and at what happened and what needs to do in terms of the, what we need to do in terms of the nation's policy. But I think counsel's questioning has been reasonable, it's been tough, but it's been within proper parameters. And it certainly doesn't behoove, it seems to me, uh, my distinguished friend, in light of his comments at that earlier hearing, encompassing uh, this witness to raise this kind of objection at this point. On that, the matter of personal privilege. Certainly. I certainly did criticize those the other day when I examined uh, Mr. Cooper, whom I thought then, and I still do think now, misled the Attorney General. The facts are beginning to come out, and I think it's a prerogative of members of this committee to make points and to bring out things of that nature. Uh, to the degree to which they're brought out, it was the member's role to do that. Uh, to the degree to which uh, Mr. Lyman is acting, it seems to me that's not his role. We had many discussions on the House side. Maybe the senators didn't have it. But we did about the role of counsel at the inception of these hearings, and that role was to be impartial, to bring out the facts, to lay the predicates, to leave the comments and the judgments and the opinions to the members. Uh, it's my judgment. Colonel Norris explained a good deal of what I was concerned about. Uh, he hasn't completely satisfied me, but he's explained a lot of it. And I think that uh, those answers were not available when I questioned Mr. Cooper. It does not bear on my point today. My point today is that the council does not have any business slanting questions in a biased fashion that look to me like he's trying to add inference on inference to come to conclusions that would lead in a certain path to persuade the public in a way you couldn't even do it in a court of law. He's acting like a prosecutor, not a prosecutor of Colonel North so much as a prosecutor of the president, a prosecutor of the administration, instead of a fact finder. And I thought our role here was to find the facts and then the members make the judgments. The Mr. Chairman, Mr. Chairman, let me just conclude this by making this observation. I think it's Arthur Lyman's responsibility to press hard for answers, particularly, particularly in light of the fact that members such as Mr. McCollum have stated about this matter involving Colonel North, it is certainly one of the highest acts of insubordination, one of the most treacherous things that has ever occurred to a president, it seems to me, in our history. And I submit with those kinds of statements from Mr. McCollum, it's a responsibility of counsel and of the members of this committee to press the witnesses very hard to find out the truth in this Mr. Matter. Chairman. Mr. Hyde. Uh, I may have a little different perspective, but if I may trespass on the time of the committee to explain to my friend from Maine, occasionally one interrupts when the iron is hot. Uh, those of you that passed your bar exams the first time have heard of the phrase sleeping on your rights. And when an issue is brought up, uh, the interruption is not to foreclose the questioning, but simply to uh, uh, deal with that issue while it is current. And secondly, this member has no quarrel whatsoever with Mr. Lyman's questioning or Mr. Neal's questioning. I think they're doing a superb job, and I'm delighted uh, with the results, and I would wish that Mr. Lyman would go on and on. I thank you. Well done. When we recessed at noon, Mr. Lyman was considering a very important aspect of the investigation, the creation and the maintenance of a secret government within our government. The business before us is very serious. I've said this on several occasions. 
We may have reason to laugh and chuckle, but what has been brought out to date gives me little cause to laugh. Mr. Lyman, proceed, sir. Colonel, did there come a time when the pricing of the arms to Iran, which were yielding the uh, profits, began to cause a problem? I'm not quite certain, Council, whether it was the pricing or simply the person we were arranging it through, but there was some difficulty with that, yes. Uh, in fact, did there come a time when you were advised that Mr. Gabonifar uh, was uh, saying that the Iranian government had concluded that it had been substantially overcharged? Yes, that's correct. And uh, he uh, reported that the Iranian government had gotten hold of some microfiche of Defense Department prices? In fact, to be more explicit, the Iranian government was apparently still on the mailing list for those microfiches. And he said that looking at those uh, microfiches and what Kabanafar had charged them, there was a 600% markup or something like that. I'm not sure of the percentage that he alluded to, but he did in indicate that they had been overcharged. And uh, when you first got deeply involved in December and January, one of the problems you had encountered then was that the Iranians were claiming that they had been cheated by Nimradi at all, right? The cheating in that case was the delivery of a system that did not fulfill their expectations and what they had been told that it would do. And now... Was not a, it was not, as I understood it, an issue of price, but more of capability. And now you were faced with accusations from the first channel that um, uh, they were being cheated by our pricing, right? That was what he told us, but it turns out that it was not so much uh, an internal Iranian problem, I don't think, so much as it was his personal problem. Now, did, did um, you have a conversation with Director Casey about the fact that uh, the uh, Iranians had failed to pay the financiers of the transaction? Uh, we had several, but it, the, the one that is, of course, most uh, easily, to rec easily recollected is the one that I had with Director Casey after Mr. Fermark had approached him. And did you consider uh, with various of your colleagues in the government ways of dealing with the... Um, with the problem that you now had? Yes, along with uh, discussions with the Israelis as to how to deal with that problem. Now, was one of the things that you considered uh, increasing the charges to the second channel so as to generate money to pay the first channel? That was considered. And indeed, uh, are you aware it's reflected in your notes? I couldn't guess at this point, Council. Well, it's uh, Exhibit 353, and it uh, bears our bait stamp Q2559. And if you look at the top, the highlighted... Uh, yes, the highlighted uh, portions. There's some portions there which I think you can appreciate. We should not read because it refers to the second channel. Right. Best way to recoup funds to pay off Fermark at all is to overcharge on subsequent deliveries. And then the next highlighted, next shipment will have to be higher, $10,000 each. And then it says, or we cannot, and then I don't think the word is finished. 
I believe that is a discussion with Mr. Neer. Uh, those are notes taken, I think, if I don't have the preceding and succeeding pages, but looking at what does follow and what is on, is, is the page behind that, uh, Council 353, the preceding page? It's the preceding one, and it appears yeah. to be a conversation with Mr. Neer, who's the only name that appears. Yes, uh, I'm, I'm, in looking at this, I recollect that this is uh, most likely one of many conversations I had with Mr. Neer uh, about this problem. I would also point out that throughout this entire endeavor, Mr. Neer insisted that we keep the prices up, whether, as we assumed, that was because the Israelis did not want us underbidding what they were normally doing, or whether that was simply to generate more revenues for their other operations, I do not know. Well, in any event, did you discuss with Mr. Casey that you had to find some way of dealing with the claims of the first channel and their financiers? Is that fair to say? Yes, uh, and although I must tell you that uh, there were many who advocated, not many, but some who, there weren't many who knew about this, but within the group of people who knew about it, there were some of us who advocated letting Mr. Gorbani Farr deal with it himself. It was a problem that he had created. I would point out that although we had certainly run the charges up, Mr. Gorbani Farr had almost uh, doubled it on top of that. And so many of the problems that were created were of his own design. Is it a fact that the problem that you were concerned about was his threat or the threat of his financiers to make this public? Well, yes, absolutely. And so an operation that had been uh, kept uh, quiet uh, from Congress was now in danger of being blown by people who said they hadn't been paid. Well, again, I, I don't want to leave anyone with a misapprehension that it was simply a matter of keeping it secret from Congress, as I have testified for nearly four days. This was an operation that was to be kept secret across the board, and it wasn't simply a matter of keeping it from the Congress. When you say... It was a covert operation for all of the reasons that I have described the needs for secrecy well, and covert operations. Well, when you say secret across the board, would you agree with me that, at the very least, the following people knew about our involvement? One, Mr. Gabonifa. Certainly. He started it. The Israelis some in the Israeli government. The Iranian government officials in the first channel. Yes. The Iranian government officials in the second channel. That's correct. So that you were willing, now when I say you, I'm not talking we're just about, about you, those obviously. Those engaged in the activity. I yes, those who were engaged in the activity were willing to take the risk on uh, trusting them with secrecy, but concluded that it was not possible or prudent to reveal it to the leadership of Congress. That's what it comes down to? Counsel, you're asking me to second-guess the decision not to have advised the, the Congress in the initiation of this activity on the finding of 6 or 17 January, and I'm not going to second-guess that decision. I would point out that in the previous administration, just prior to this one, there was a similar effort to rescue hostages, and to my knowledge, the Congress was not briefed on that one. And there were Iranians and Israelis and foreign government officials and officials throughout our government who were apprised of that activity, and because of the risk to life of American citizens, to include the hostages, the Congress was not briefed. Was the leadership briefed? I don't know. I was told that it was not, but I was not here. Uh, <coughs> Colonel, uh, the, um, on this operation, uh, was there any discussion that took place 